0: Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker. I am an author, a speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. But what I really love doing is having geeky conversations with people about all kinds of things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. Ah, these are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. Today, we get to talk about a wildly popular course at Israel Bible Center called the Jewish Church. The course was created by Professor Pinchas Shir, and everyone who took the course on Acts chapters 1 through 5 demanded that he continue to develop the course, so he created part 2 and is now creating part 3. Even with three parts, he only plans to get through chapter 15, so you know this is a dense class filled with great information. We start today talking about the title of this course, The Jewish Church. That is something that seems obvious once you think about it, and yet continues to take people off guard because they don't always connect the word church with the word Jewish. So I asked Professor Pinhashir to tell us about his thoughts behind choosing the title for this IBC course.
1: It was actually meant to be very provocative in that sense you know besides the fact that we already had another course with a similar name so we have the stories of jewish christ which also meant to be provocative in a way because people think christ you know like jewish christ what do you need to add to that you know why does it have to be jewish you know well because it is because there is this illusion that there's such thing as a non-jewish christ right i mean so like the you know blonde haired babies with blue eyes laying in a manger, you know, and all the Christmas scenes like, you know, that's like that's not exactly Israeli scene. So uh, since there's such a notion as a non-Jewish Christ, then just adding a word Jewish changes it. Right. I'm, I'm basically reclaiming it back. I'm, ta- I'm taking it back and I'm saying, OK, no, you have to look at it in its natural context. And so the same thing with the stories of the Jewish church. I said, I'm just going to follow up with this. Because most people think of church as something non-Jewish. I mean, it, um, if I ask people church, they think Gentile, I mean, synagogue, Jewish. And these are the lines that have been drawn for a long, long time. So if I want to get people out of that type of thinking, which is what's really necessary if you're going to study Acts, then I kind of have to force the issue. And therefore, I say Jewish church, and all of a sudden, now people are saying, now, what are you talking about? Well, yeah, I'm talking about the kind of church you don't know, because the church you know, the one that you are familiar with, the one that you're comfortable in, it's not what we see in the book of Acts. So can I get you out of your environment and into a different context? I'm going to get you into the Jewish church, which is nothing like the one you know. And that's, I think, a little bit kind of strange for people and a little bit exciting at the same time, because they know they're getting into something that's different and historical and Unusual, uh, and and that's the exciting part, you know. I, I I think, but another aspect is that they are also going to the text that they themselves know, and and there's also always that aspect of seeing something new, in something that's old and familiar. Now, to me, I love that kind of stuff, and show me something new out of something what I already know, and that's what I do with people. I just kind of bring out the aspects of uh, the text they already know. In a completely different way that I haven't looked at it before.
0: And it's interesting because you make the distinction early on in your course that you say something to the effect of because Gentiles weren't following Jesus in the Gospels. And that also might surprise people if they don't stop and think about it first, because Jesus interacts with a lot of Gentiles. Uh, throughout the Gospels. So how would you distinguish the Jesus interacting with lots of Gentiles and making the claim there are no Gentiles following Jesus?
1: Well, the the claim is very simple. I mean, it's a historical claim. You basically have this Jewish preacher traveling to the countryside. You have this rabbi traveling to the countryside, and he's in Israel. And of course, he's going to encounter Gentiles. Why? Because there are Gentiles living alongside of Jews. I mean, Jews are a conquered territory, the Romans. You know, before Romans, there were Greeks. And yes, there are people there all over Israel who have been living in that land in various capacities. And so, yes, you're going to encounter non-Jews. But at the same time, how many non-Jews follow a Jewish rabbi around the countryside just from place to place listening to his ramblings about some prophets And some coming great times, like that is not something but an average Greek or Roman would even care about. In fact, their world is so vastly different. Even if they did understand what the rabbi said, which I doubt it was in translation. I doubt it was in Greek. Let's put it that way. And if even if translation was provided, uh, I doubt they would understand the concepts that were behind it. Because you're speaking to a culture that is basically permeated with the world of the Bible they read the prophets in the synagogue okay they sing Psalms their entire life of worship and is and teaching from their mother's womb the Torah you know and so when you grow up in this and you understand this this is natural to you then of course you understand what in the world the guy is saying but if you're an outsider uh, I mean it's just like me and rolling into a uh, school and you know Tibet I would have no idea what in the world they're saying because I don't speak the language and I certainly don't uh, understand any of the Buddhist concepts without formally you know, getting into those texts. I would be lost. And that's what I think what anybody would be. So yeah, when I say uh, Gentiles were not following Jesus, yes, there's interaction with Gentiles in the Gospels, but they're not his disciples. They're not going from one hill to the other hill. They're not the ones sitting around the campfire eating fish with him. That's not happening. In fact, it doesn't happen until much, much later in the book of Acts. You know, so people visualize this idea because they're looking at the reality that they know today, but they're not realizing that there was no Gentiles present there, sort of say, as followers of Christ. They're always in a milieu, but they're not following him. And when we get into the book of acts it's the same exact story that's what i want people to realize that for decades there are no gentiles no i mean pentecost no gentiles i mean everybody thinks like pentecost like all the nations are coming to jerusalem and here they're hearing the good news and the tongues of fire and all of this stuff and that's exciting because that's how every pastor probably preaches acts too right But that's not what the reality is. The reality is these are Jews from all the countries of the world that they've been scattered by, probably by force, probably as a result of slavery and war. And here they're coming back to Jerusalem to worship because maybe now they've gained their freedom back. They were emancipated in some way, and now they're coming to celebrate the feast. and, And they're hearing all these languages being spoken, and they say, wait a minute, how do these people know these languages? This is, this is where I live right now. How is this happening? And, and so there's a little bit of a kind of a mind switch that has to happen in, in people's uh, conceptualization of this moment in Acts 2 that this is still a Jewish crowd. And because, frankly, Greeks and Romans didn't care to travel to Jerusalem to worship the God of Israel, they had nothing to do with that. They would have no business being in Jerusalem during a festival like that.
0: this is a fun geographical bit of information. Jerusalem is so prominent in scripture that we think of it as a huge city that everyone wants to live in. The Bible tells us of all of these festivals and how people seem to often travel to the city, but that is only from one particular point of view. For those who don't care about the temple and don't care about the history that is preserved in the very rocks, valleys, and horizon line, there was little to entice people to live in the city. Among Herod's great building campaigns, he built himself a large opulent palace in Jerusalem. But when he died and Roman governors eventually took control over the area, they spent little time in the palace in Jerusalem and a lot more time ruling from the Rome-adoring city of Caesarea Maritime. We have to read contextually... And in Acts, when pilgrims are in Jerusalem for Pentecost, we have to recognize that it's for the celebration of Shavuot. And while Acts chapter 2 verses 9 through 11 gives us a long list of cities and regions from where pilgrims came, we have to recognize that they were all Jewish pilgrims who understood what Shavuot was all about. That alone will transform how you read Acts because you will begin to see the complex conversations and the friction between characters that has to do with their backgrounds and where they're from.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of cultural context and there's a lot of, um, sort of, say, even ethnic tensions that are happening there in the book of Acts that we're not aware of because we don't have those ethnic tensions right now. For us, this has all been settled and it's all nice, but we don't fully understand the animosity that actually exists between people there. Um, And and because we don't feel it today, we project ourselves always, always into the text, which is in a way is good, but in a way it's bad because it takes us away from reality. It's good that we're connecting with the text on a personal level. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, but it also takes us away from reality. In the end, it causes us to interpret the text very differently in a very subjective way. So my hope, my job is to pull people out of that environment and say, okay, let's step back into the history. Let's look at what really happened and let's immerse ourselves in their world and try to read it from their perspective, from their vantage Point. And that's where people see a lot of the new aspects and angles that, that makes it exciting. So, yeah, I forced the issue of, you know, there are no Gentiles here early on. And I go through all the chapters and I say, okay, still not happening. Still not happening. Still not
0: here.
1: Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> you know? And I go and that's why I call it the Jewish church, because I go through the first 15 chapters and there's very few, actually very, very few non-Jews in the first 15 chapters of Acts. Yeah, they're there. But they're such a tiny minority that nobody even worries about them until you get to the council in you know, chapter 15. And then it's more of a sudden, all, all of a sudden, that's a question now. Like, well, what happened for the first 15 chapters? You know, because we're talking about decades now. Well, that's when you realize now it's finally come to the forefront. And now this is a point of discussion. But we've already got so many chapters under our belt.
0: Well, I I don't think at Israel Bible Center, I don't think that we have any kind of suggested, like, take courses in this order. At least I've never seen a list like this. But you and I, uh, even on this podcast, we have talked about one of the other courses you have about Paul in his Jewish world. And we were, in the podcast anyway, we were comparing the area of Galatia with Corinth. And part of me now is thinking, I really should have done the Acts conversation with you first (laughs) before we did that one. But, you know, people can listen to them, keep going back and forth and listen to them. But just because Acts really is just so foundational for the difficulty of the growth of the original church.
1: It, It really needs to be read along with the Gospels. Yeah, I mean, even though it was written completely different, I mean, we have everything backwards in a sense. We have the epistles being written first. You know, you have Galatians coming to the scene first, and then the Gospels appear later. And we, in our mind, think, no, that's not the way it's arranged in my Bible, right? When I open my New Testament, I begin reading from here. And you're thinking about it, then you're not really reading chronologically. I mean, there's a a reason why these things were laid out that way to kind of guide you in that way, but that's not actually how it happens. So, and no different than what we do right now. We're talking about acts. Uh, and this has been an ongoing project because I, you know, I did part one, part two, and it's been planned. So now I'm working on part three. So I'm actually finishing my notes right now. And I'm hoping to start recording soon on, on acts, you know, part three, which would be that latter section of the 15 chapters that I've decided to look at. And so it's been an exciting journey, but As I am backtracking, I'm also going and looking at some of the things that I recorded in in other courses in Romans and Galatians, and it's all interconnected. But actually, Acts present a very different picture of of things sometimes. You know, what you carry away from the book of Acts is is different than what you get from some of the uh, apostolic letters that have been written. It's a slightly different take, and that's because I think who's writing? and their, perspe- their perspective, so I like to do Luke-Acts, just kind of like a set. You're really meant to be together. It's like part one, part two, because it is really actually one story that he wants to tell you. So I tell people the best way to read it is just like read Luke and just go right into Acts and don't stop.
0: It also strikes me the geography bit in Acts, like the fact that you're choosing to go one through 15 for the most part aside from Paul's initial journey everything is in the land of the gospels it's still the same land and so you're you're still walking the same roads that have the same history with the same horizon lines that are provoking memories of the past and and that is really really significant for speaking volumes to the the people who are hearing the message in their those first few chapters and then it's and then it's a whole dramatic other story once you move into asia minor and head off towards rome but it's and you know i
1: pull up maps and i show people okay this is the road that they would have taken going this way and that way because you know those roads are actually still there (laughs) people don't realize it but they are still there and, and we know which route they would have taken coming that way. Uh, but yeah, it, to me, geography is a big part, obviously, of this, and especially when we're in Jerusalem, and so much of Acts is happening in Jerusalem. And I think people don't really have a good handle of where things are, you know, unless people have been there and stood there and walked the ruins and have kind of an idea of what things look like. It's very hard for people to imagine. So yeah, I put up a lot of images of Jerusalem and a lot of ruins and try to kind of draw on top of it and say, yeah, I want you to realize that this is where they were. This is probably where this happened. And I want you to see the proximity to the temple. And I want you to see where the entrance would have been and where the exit would have been and where the uh, the immersion poles would have been. And so as I go through the story of Acts, I'm trying to kind of connect people to the land in a very tangible way because I don't want them just to read the story. I want them to try to visualize where it happened. And because I have some good photographs Have have some nice images uh, and also some reconstructions, you know, of of ancient Jerusalem. That allows me to kind of put people into the story in a much more tangible way, you know, without having them travel with me to Israel and saying, "Okay, right here, right now, where we're standing,"
0: (laughs) which is still maybe ideal, but it's really difficult for the majority of people to get over there. It's a long trip. (laughs) It's a long and expensive journey. Uh, I in like all the images that you're talking about it struck me because I went through and I was refreshing my memory about your course. And again, chapters one through five are part one. And over and over and over and over and over, there's a picture of the temple and it just sits there again as a, this is a Jewish church and they're still very active and involved in the temple. So within those first five chapters, The temple isn't ignored. People don't automatically walk away. It's still life as they've always done it, which involves a lot of temple time.
1: Yeah. I mean, every prayer service, guess where it happens? I mean, this is the largest prayer spot. And why would you change anything? Why would you do anything? This has been the spiritual heritage, you know, for so many years. And this is where everyone comes to meet God. And you don't ever separate yourself from the rest of the people you want to be where the action is you want to be where even though the priesthood may be corrupt even though there may be people who are running the system who you do not agree with you don't just disassociate yourself from the greater society because you realize that there's going to be thousands of people walking into that very space who are probably on the same page with you much more so than the high priest and 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 his internal little crew and things like that so this it's a very Jew, it's a jewish space And it's public space. Who manages it is a different story. And that's what people don't realize, that, you know, it's not like you weren't allowed to go to the temple, excuse me, show me your passport kind of an idea. It's a public space. The gates are open. And you walk in and there you are.
0: Yeah. And just the fact that they continue to be there is... It's just another nudge in the direction of they still saw themselves as Jewish. They still understood Jesus within their heritage and within what they're already doing. So it wasn't like, oh, we believe in Jesus. Now we're severing ourselves and cutting ourselves off. Yeah, I did. But it isn't in the Bible. (laughs) It's
1: a modern illusion. I mean, really. and, And I call it an illusion because it is an illusion, because if you see the text that uh, all of the apostles quote every time there's a speech and there are a number of speeches in acts of course what do they do i mean we have like their sermons recorded essentially which i find absolutely amazing you know if this is the memory that they were actually preserving and this is what he said and these are the quotes that they relied upon it's it's all the prophets and and uh, and i'm sorry if, you know frankly you say a lot of the passages about the prophets There's punishment that comes, but it's not upon Israel a lot of times, it's upon the nations. And when Peter stands up over there and quotes Joel 3, and of course he doesn't quote that portion, but if you read Joel 3, it begins with the judgment of the nations. It says that God brings nations into the Valley of Jehoshaphat, and he's going to judge of who treated Israel and in which way they treated them. And that's how that judgment is going to happen so i know people don't always necessarily read joel 3 that way but that's what it says in and, and then he brings that into the message you know he talks about god coming in power and but it's all about the prophets essentially that's where all, all of the messages are going to come from so yeah how what else can it be uh, a lot of times people don't realize that the messages in the book of acts they have footnotes they have those quotations sometimes they're direct quotes, sometimes they're allusions. When you start reading those, you go back to the original text, and you say, okay, what is going on through their minds? Then all of a sudden that context is filled in, and you're like, oh, now I'm on the same, same page with them. Because this is not something new they're saying. They're repeating and rehashing the words of the prophet, only they feel that the words of the prophets are happening right then and right there at that moment which is why a lot of the language in the New Testament says this is being fulfilled. This is what the prophets spoke about. We're living those moments that the prophets only hoped for. So to me, that's exciting. But uh, that's what I try to bring out for my students is to show them the connections that a lot of times that they're not just familiar with.
0: Can we talk more about Joel 3? Sure. This this is fascinating to me. I'm in the middle of teaching a class on the prophets. And so I'm kind of obsessed by it. The prophetic words and Joel in particular is really fond of the day of the Lord and the day of the Lord when it comes is terrifying, but can be a blessing. It kind of depends on if you're on the receiving end of the fierceness of God or in. if God is going before you and protecting you. <laughs> so,
1: it, it really depends which you're, which group you're in. And, yeah. And so that's that's. I mean, it's good. Be it could be good news. It could be bad news.
0: Yeah. So what is Peter getting at? So you already talked about the beginning of Joel chapter 3, which the audience listening to Peter would have known, and so that would have sat as background text for them. But when Peter starts coming in with, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And then he goes into how all these different people, men, women, old, young, they will prophesy, the city will be rebuilt. What is, what is Peter getting at and how does that make any sense given the context of Pentecost?
1: So uh, understanding that he's an apocalyptic Jew... Like Paul is also an apocalyptic Jew. And that means somebody who reads the prophets and believes the words of the prophets. They absolutely, in their heart of hearts, believe that what God said through his servants will come about. They don't quite know how it's going to come about, but they're looking for it every moment. And so right now that they have seen this amazing manifestation in Jerusalem, right? I mean, they have this display of God's power, the coming of the Spirit. It was promised, and here it is. So what is their mind going to? Their mind is going to the prophets. They're saying, this is now being fulfilled. And they're starting to look for the references of prophets. Like, where is the prophet talking about this? What have we been promised? How can we connect the dots? And so I think Peter's mind goes uh, to Joel, and he goes to that passage where he is actually observing what's happening. You, you have God manifesting himself through a word, through prophecy, through visions, through these... Miraculous signs and wonders, and of course, that's happening in the last day. So, that the idea of this, you know, the last days, the final days, is again on the mind of every apocalyptically minded Jew. They're thinking, Is this the end? Is this when God restores all things? And remember what happens in the end of Luke. Is this is, Is this when you restore the kingdom of Israel? I mean, that's how it sort of say, flows into the book of Acts. And he says, don't worry, it's not for you to know. Everything's going to work out, kind of an idea. But that's what they're looking for. And the reason why they're looking for is, imagine they're living under Roman oppression. They are living in a society that is very harsh uh, upon them. And so how much would they like to have freedom and independence? and not to have foreigners involved in every affairs and telling them what they have to do and what taxes they have to pay and what they can and cannot uh, do in their own land, essentially. So, yes, you know, Joel chapter 3, the beginning part would probably would where they want to go because they want to go straight to the judgment part, right? Okay, God, you're here. Let's judge these people, right? But that's not where Peter goes. Peter goes to the part of the outpouring of the Spirit because that's what just happened. So he happens to gravitate towards that part of the text. And it's actually not unusual for people to take different portions of the prophet and use them in a very kind of free way and to point to different messages that the prophets have said without sort of being consistent, without sort of setting up a context. But what we have to understand about prophets, and you would know this because you've been teaching the prophets, they're not texts that are sequential. They're anthologies. They're little tiny snippets. So trying to read prophet in a context, as far as the literary context, actually doesn't matter because they are little tiny chunks and they can be treated as little chunks. Now, you, in the prophets, you have to understand the historical setting. You have to understand the geographical setting, but the textual progression, because pro, the books of the prophets were not written as literary, you know, works of art. They're non-sequential. And that's where it doesn't really help us. So, while we're reading a narrative, and in a narrative, the flow is important, and you go from one part to the other part to the other part, that's important. But in the prophets, they're not like that. They were composed in these little chunks. And so, yes, Peter is free to go to that little chunk and basically avoid the one that talks about judgment.
0: (laughs) The... It's interesting, and I wonder if you could just briefly explain what an apocalyptic view would have been at that particular time in the first century. You cover this in your other course on the book of Revelations, which is an apocalyptic book. But just in case people haven't taken that particular course with you, to say Peter and Saul, then Paul, has an apocalyptic view What does that mean that they're thinking about when it comes to the end times, quote unquote, and whatever the end times means for them?
1: So the concept that Joel, for example, is very fond of, as you mentioned, the day of the Lord, like that's what they're looking for. So the day of the Lord is a day when God restores all things, when there's justice upon the earth. And this is where basically God tangibly gets involved in human affairs to a degree where he starts just doing things. Where before, he's kind of giving us prophets, sending us direction, giving us teachers, points us in the right direction, but essentially allows us to continue to make mistakes and get off course. And of course, then we get punished. But then there's a little bit of a course correction back and forth. But there's a lot of freedom that's being given. And that judgment moment is not there yet. So the day of the Lord is directly tied to the idea of judgment. And judgment is, is the moment of accounting. That's where God says, okay, I have given you this land to manage. I have given you this time to get things right. You've had plenty of opportunities and you have messed it up. So now it's time. Those who are faithful will be found faithful. Those who are unfaithful will be found unfaithful. But this is when people hold, basically are held accountable for their actions and for what they have done with the authority, with the power, the resources that they had have they moved towards that idea of kingdom of God? Have they tried to move in the direction of how God would have wanted things to be? Or did they try to push things in a way that was more profitable for them, you know, better for them? Or did they try to look at the other nations and say, oh, we want to be just like the Assyrians because they really got a good thing going. Yeah, God told us to forgive all debts, you know, yes, God told us every seventh year, you know, do not harvest, but everybody else does, you know. And yeah, if you have 50 year, you got to let the f- slaves go free. What are you talking about? Nobody lets their slaves go free. We don't do that. You know, nobody else does it. So why should we do it? Why do we get the short of the end of the stick? So there's this idea that. This
0: sounds like such a modern conversation. <laughs> it is
1: because we're people and things don't change. <laughs> Things don't change. We're human beings. We compromise all the time. Like we know what's right, but we don't want to do it because around us, there are people who are not following by the same rules. And why should we limit ourselves to follow the and straight, you know, stay on the straight and narrow path where everybody else wanders every direction they want. And so that's very alluring to us because in the end, we want to be like everybody else. We don't want to stick out, but that's not the calling of Israel. That's not. The path that God has designed. God said, You're my people, you're different. I don't want you to be like anybody else. I'm going to give you a bunch of rules to make sure that you don't do anything like anybody else. I'm going to give you a different system of economy. And you're going to have a different economical system set up in your country. I want you to treat people differently. Yes, these people do it this way, but this is how I want you to organize your lives. And so, are we faithful? Are we not faithful? That's what the day of judgment is all about. Are we trying to move in the direction that God has laid out? Or are we going our own rebellious way? And so there's been cycle after cycle in the history of Israel where these moments of going away and returning, going away and returning. And that's really a human journey. I think everybody identifies with that part, which is why people can read the history of Israel and they can see themselves in that. We're all like that. It's human nature. But then when you get to that moment of judgment, there's when you say, okay, uh, the time has run out. Now God has taken over control because we have shown ourselves not to be effective anymore. And now, now is the time of restoration because we can only basically mess things up for so long. And God is going to restore things. That's what the prophets are talking about. They always talk about returning back to God's ways, to how things used to be. I gave you good instruction, you know, follow that. And And then if not, there's judgment. I mean, this is no different than Deuteronomy. That's how Deuteronomy ends, judgment. You know, if you don't follow, there's consequences. So that's that ultimate apocalyptic view. Uh, This is, you know, of course, we say apocalyptic, and that's the word we use. That's the term we use. All that means is, you know, disclosure, revelation, right? So, you know, and that's where basically God discloses himself or reveals himself in the way that we haven't seen him lately. Let's put it that way, because we're used to. Us being able to manage our affairs but now God all of a sudden interrupts our management of our affairs and says okay enough now in, now all accounts are being settled I'm calling in at all and 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 that's something that people look to because those who live righteous lives what do they have to lose there will be more righteousness there'll be more fairness there will be more equity because God is a righteous judge We never doubt the fact that he's not going to set things right. We don't have to worry about God being unjust and punishing somebody who's really not guilty for something they did not do. No, we don't have to worry about that. So if you are righteous, you have have complete comfort with that. But then if you are unrighteous, if you're crooked, then the last thing you want and for that moment to come, because you want to continue living in that, corrupt way. And you don't want that to be interrupted. And that's where the drama really comes in.
0: We obviously cannot be done talking about this course. We still have to talk about Peter's use of the Psalms and why on earth people give all their stuff away in chapters four and five. Don't miss our conversation next week. In the meantime, if you want to join a whole online community that is taking a new look at the Bible, you are most welcome to join our community at IsraelBibleCenter.com. You can enroll in this course, The Jewish Church, and there's links for all of these things in the show notes of this episode. And you can combine this course with other courses from our extensive catalog to earn a certificate in Jewish context and culture. Thank you, Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing an amazing job mixing, editing, and crafting all the good sounds you hear. But thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible related.